Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Dennis Tunchalp, thank you very much for coming on our podcast and speaking to us today about innovation, entrepreneurship, the startup culture in Turkey, etc. We're very excited to speak with you and uh, just wanted to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience in your own words. Well, thank you for the invitation. As you correctly pronounced, I am Dennis Tunchalp. I'm an associate professor of management and entrepreneurship at Istanbul Technical University. I have been in this position at different levels for like more than 12, 13 years. Prior to that, I was in the industry. I had more than 20 years of technology, telecoms, IT-related career before the academic one. At some point, I decided that I might be more fruitful, more helpful if I would be at the university. So I did already my PhD before that switch. So I landed, I mean, I did a postdoc in the U.S. and then wait a few years for an opportunity to appear. And then I landed at the university. And because this both parts of my life, I always been in between the academia and the professional or or the practical world. So I, I always acted like a translator in between both domains a bit, because practically they don't speak the same language, although they use the same words and dictionaries, they mean different things to different phenomena. So I acted like an inter, like a, like a translator between the practical world, and still I am. So in the university, in the last, I don't know how many, well, I'm at the business school, first of all, so there's no uh, theoretical. I'm on the most theoretical side of the business school. I teach organization theory. So it's sociological theory is implemented at the meso level of analysis organizations. Uh, but still, uh, so I am highly involved with the practice of management. So act, working with a lot of um, startups, I did my own startup before I joined the university, but at the, it was around two, at the beginning of 2000s. But when I was doing it, it wasn't so fashionable. It wasn't that cool to have a, co- have a technology company yourself. I did an exit in 2003, so I always, you know, enjoyed this area in between practice and theory, academia and enterprises, this and that. So this is like Turkey's history. So Turkey is also kind of a bridge in between East and West. I did my own bridging between different domains of life. Thank you for that comprehensive introduction. There's a few points I wanted to touch on, but speaking about your startup, that seems to me to line up with the dot-com bubble. And you said it wasn't very fashionable then to own a tech company. Could you please elaborate on why it wasn't fashionable then and why it's fashionable now? Well, the entrepreneurial, let's say, fashion and fad, and it's no longer fashion and fad, it's now here to stay, but it wasn't initiated in Turkey up until 2005, 10-ish. Okay. So at the when the uh, dot com bubble was happening in the US, Turkey is more observant position. We had the internet, we were enjoying different services, but not many dot coms were prevalent. Not uh, they were not flourishing when the boom and bust was happening in US. I see. I started my career in an American consulting company called Gartner Group. They're affiliate in Turkey and the Middle East, and where I started selling consulting to different Turkish enterprises as well as government agencies. And then in Y2K, before 2000, I sold a lot of Y2K-related consulting and audits. So that's how I introduced into selling IT audits to different companies. 
And I also sold maybe the first internet security tests. Well, it was in the last century. We didn't have that much uh, critical services online, but I was able to sell maybe the first penetration test, as they call it, okay. for a Turkish insurance company. And then I continued in that realm. So, But the entrepreneurship became, or startup businesses became more mainstream or fashionable after 2005 and maybe later. Okay. I'd like to talk briefly about Turkey itself. I admit, perhaps embarrassingly, that I didn't know much about the startup scene there. But as I've started to learn more, I'm surprised that I haven't, because it seems to be one of the world's foremost centers of entrepreneurship and innovation. Could you please just tell us about why that is? Why is Turkey special? And why have we not heard about it? Like, why does Silicon Valley get all the love? We have a promotion problem. So Turkey is how Europe defines its identity. If you look at the history, what is European is essentially not Russian or Turkish. So we usually ended up in the other side of the entity. So Europe usually defines its identity against being not Russian, being not Turkish. So although geographically, Europe, depending on how you define it, may, may cover this part of the world as well, we have always been the other. Depending on how you define Europe, this is where the Homeros, Iliada, and Odessa take place. So this, all the ancient stories happen in Anatolia, mm. between Greece and Sparta, Ionia and Greece. So this is the land where the ancient... And so we are not outside Europe, but culture-wise, Turkey is defined against the European identity for many years. Although okay. Turkey is in the queue for accession to Turkey, the European uh, Union, it didn't happen in the past and it's not happening in the foreseeable future. So I don't know. We have maybe not that good publicity somehow, but you know, there are significant advantages here. First of all, Turkey is a very diverse country. So diversity in terms of, you know, local cultures, individual differences, the variation in the society is very high. So you go to, you know, a Northern European or somewhere else. So it's, more homogeneous. The, the population is more homogeneous. Culture is more monolithic. So I have a lot of Nordic friends. They always think very similar to one another because of the, the similarities inherent in those populations. Here, this is the bridge. Many cultures have been passed, have passed for uh, centuries, and many cultural, uh, you know, essences or uh, you know, different tribes, ethnicities remain in the bridge. So this creates a lot of uh, very high variation. And I think it fuels creativity quite a lot. You may have a problem. Uh, the Turkish population may come up with very interesting, very different results, solutions. Not all of them might be solving your problem, but you know there are quite a lot of different ideas for almost anything you may come up with. Sounds like a, a natural innovation lab somewhere between Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Yeah. And actually, that location gives us the advantage to be able to understand different walks of life. So we know we can familiarize or connect with what Eastern societies, African societies, Arab society, Russian, this in-betweenness actually help us understand maybe more easily than other cultures might be thinking or, or I don't know, might be familiar with. Okay. That's why I teach people quite... So this, if you look at in the long history, if you look at from a you know from a distance, a Turkish tribe has been moving to the west for don't know how, how many centuries, 
or how many hundreds of years. So this is kind of a culture on the move. So still, if you go to Germany, mm. in Berlin, there is a very vivid Turkish community there mm. and quite active in the startup arena as well. You go to UK, there are you know similar similarities. So that's an advantage. And Turkey is a big country, so the population is big, although maybe it's not that equal. So the education, wealth may not be that equally distributed. That's a major disadvantage. But the trained, educated, connected part of the country is quite big, bigger than many European countries. So they can, I mean, if you were be able to, if you were able to make a more egalitarian or let's say equal distribution of wealth and well-being, that will be much better. But still, the more educated, more economically established part create a lot of innovation, software, good business models, etc. So that's how you see those good startups, a number of unicorns as well. Well, moving to the present, what are you doing now? Am I? Yeah. <laughs> right now, so in Turkey, we uh, the government has very interesting tax-free proposals to business. So if you are a major global company, you can have your R&D here in Istanbul or elsewhere in the country. And if you are doing R&D tech-based product development, you are exempt from a number of taxes, maybe most of them. So these are called science parks. So in Turkey, right now, there are more than nearly 100 science parks exist in different parts of the country, mostly affiliated with a university. So university produces good uh, educated people, good professionals, and you may hire them quite easily with a tax advantage. So these are called science parks. And previously, I was running one of the biggest science parks of Turkey in Istanbul Technical University, mostly dedicated to software-only businesses. It's a huge area with 400 enterprises on the main campus at different sizes. There are startups, there are multinationals, etc. They all do R&D, software-based product development. And ITU graduates, my university graduates can easily, and also faculty members, can easily join the projects, and get employed, etc. But after the COVID, the software developers are kind of virtualized. They no longer want to remain in a building, you know, work in a campus. Digital nomads became more, let's say, popular. So that's why until so far, the science parks were mostly populated by software-only startups, software-only companies, projects, etc. We are right now trying the industrial verticals help them, if they are not doing R&D, help them start doing R&D with the university resources and do their product development, uh, engagement, etc. If they are doing an R&D at their own location, we are trying to bring them to the university campus because software-only startups or companies no longer require being in a campus. The physical world, the industries, you name the hardware, drones, materials, this and that, they still need labs and the physical environment. So uh, while we, not in a fast fashion, but over time, it seems that we'll be losing the software on the businesses from campus. We try to engage uh, hybrid or IoT or more hardware businesses to make to do their R&D on our science park. So I'm establishing a new science park at Istanbul Technical University, which is kind of dedicated to hybrid uh, software, hardware, or all the classical industries as well, and make them 
improve their sophistication of their R&D with the university resources. You said there are about 100 science parks in Turkey right now. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So this will be 101? <laughs> no, we are within the first 99 of them. Okay. We already established last summer. We officially opened. Now we are trying to activate the official permission by the government. There's a lot we could talk about there. I just have a one question top of mind. I spoke to this gentleman who used uh, or is using AI to facilitate patent applications in Silicon Valley. He estimates, mm -hmm. he's been a patent lawyer for decades, and he estimates that this could speed up the process by 20% around, if I recall correctly. I'm curious, with your science park and innovation, are you seeing some use cases for artificial intelligence at this point to speed up innovation? Or do you think it's too early? Well, with generative AI, this is becoming like a brute force attack. Now, generative AI or large language models, if you train them with existing patents, existing laws, for many years, the medical industry is searching for new molecules with automated uh, mathematical models. So you don't specifically develop a molecule itself, but you develop a range of different molecules without knowing what they will be helpful for. You first develop, you know, using some algorithms, you, you modify, and then you do the lab tests in an ad hoc, you know, usually we have a hypothesis and we test. Now we don't have a hypothesis, but we have solutions to problems we don't know. And you test those molecules or the active material in the field to see in which type of problems or health issues they are uh, applicable. They go in a reverse direction, do a brute force search activity for maybe more than 20 years. Now this is coming to the intellectual property. If you know in a, in a multidimensional world, if you know where are blocks uh, with existing patterns, these generative AI models now are able to uh, verbally create, textually create new patent, let's say, drafts, but they may not be an invention. So it's a kind of automatically generated. A human agent should sit down and check there is something new in that fancy text. Using that, and also the big multinational companies are registering patents and IP in very big quantities trying to stop their competition and disable a large multinational to enter a certain domain, you actually block all patents you can register so that the other company like Samsung, Apple, this and that cannot enter that domain. This is becoming a brute force war between different tech companies. But I think this is quite detrimental for startups because startups have scarce resources. And these actually blocks, not only blocking those multinationals out, multinationals out, but also it stops startups as well. Because the IP barriers established by large companies is good for their fighting, but can be quite effective to block out potential startups. And startups have very scarce resources. One startup, no matter how much in, uh, investment they receive, they may not be able to register patents in different countries in high quantities. It costs a lot. I think open, you know, licensing and, you know, disclosing the inventions for open source type of models will become a more, you know, fashionable among startups because the existing patent order is a quite a bit supportive. I mean, it supports large multinationals more than it supports invention or uh, small startups.
That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't considered that before. Yeah, that maybe needs to be a redress to continue innovation and growth. If you're Samsung, if you're Apple, if you're IBM, patents are working for you and you have the budget for that. But if you're a Californian or Istanbulian uh, startup with very scarce resources, a few million dollars of investment, how many patents can you invest and should you? Of course, IPs are valuable for startups. But when a startup registers an IP in Europe, US, Japan, this is called triadic, when you cover most of the world, it costs a lot. All the legal follow-up costs, registration is more doable. But as new transactions come up, new issues come up, you need a lot of legal costs involved. And this, well, maybe one patent, two patent, this is good for your valuation. But in the whole business strategy, you cannot register 100 patents being a startup while your multinational competitor can do. Right. Talking about you starting a science park, what are some of the obstacles that you're encountering between your vision of what you'd like to see and what you're able to create, if any? We are like a startup ourselves. Because science parks in Turkey support, a lot, with also the regulation asks us to do so. With the guidance of the ministry, these 90-something science parks in their own vicinity, they support startups a lot. But most of them, by definition, established by the university or partnered with large companies or local NGOs, etc. They're like an SME or a large-scale company. What we do here, we try to change our logic to a startup. We should be acting like a startup as well. So that's something new. So we have our own business model. We have our own marketing. So we try to iterate between different models and try to improve, try to learn, try to adapt. We try to do our science park establishment. Although I have very big Turkish founders, very big Turkish multinationals, as Istanbul Technical University is one of the oldest technical universities in the world. It's okay. in, uh, We established in 1773. It's very old. In the Older top five the US. old engineering schools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, most, yeah, exactly. So although we have quite a lot of resources, we try to do this like a startup so that we can familiarize, we can understand, we can join with existing startups more easily since we will be belonging to the same mental scheme, mental model. So if we talk the same language with the startups, if we act like a startup ourselves, maybe we can help those startups develop more efficiently, more effectively. Now, this is not an obstacle. This is a, you know, we try to do this in a different logic. In our previous science park, the existing one is already there. It's a big entity with 400 enterprises, all software companies, a few thousands of people working in different companies on campus. It's already established. It was a big enterprise. I was the general manager of the company for eight years. It was a different experience because you have more resources to do. Now we have, just like any other startup, we have limited resources. And we try to make best use of that capital provided to us to establish the, the environment. Do these science parks operate as independent campuses or silos, or do they collaborate in some capacity? So there's a maturity curve. Okay. At the beginning, you need to establish the environment at different scale. Then you have to promote yourself among different circles so that the project owners want to be a part of it. At first, you establish the physical environment. This is more of a construction stage. 
Then the initial promotion, due to the promotion, existing stock, new co-founders, new startups, as well as existing companies should choose you against the others. So that's the second phase. In the third phase, now you're almost full or, you know, have majority of your capacity already taken. You try to increase the level of maturity or the level of sophistication of the R&D you house. So you select Of course, you are selective, but you become more selective for choosing better projects. This is the first level. And after you fill your capacity with good R&D, you know, flourishing, successful companies, then what should you do next? Then it becomes collaboration or extended collaboration. So after that stage, for instance, we did a, we did a program. We brought more than 200 Turkish startups to different parts of U.S., for them to develop their business. So we try to help them with the with an international acceleration program in collaboration with other science parks in Istanbul. So it becomes more of a network effect. Mm. But you have to first establish your place, fill it to an extent, and improve the quality so that it becomes more competitive. And then you at the first, fourth uh, generate at the fourth level, you try to contribute to their businesses with your activities as a science park. Okay. And the role of the science park, is it similar to an incubator or an accelerator? Is there a role after the company launches? Well, actually, there is a global association of science parks, IASP. So in many countries, there are different science parks in Russia, Spain, Turkey, Greece, you name the US. So in many countries, there are different areas of innovation that try to reestablish something similar to the Silicon Valley. So there is a collaboration between science parks as well at the global scale. Every year there's an annual conference, so science parks bring their best practices to discuss. But beside that, you know, in our Turkish version, which is a very successful one, you can, the Turkish legal frame is quite shown as a best practice by other countries. So there are a number of tax advantages the Science Park Management Company is an independent entity, also acts like a consultant or an agent for the company to make best use of opportunities available to them. So it's, it acts like an incubator as well as an accelerator and a consultant. So it's a kind of combination of those three. Okay. And also multinationals. You might be an American or a European company. You may well position your R&D in Turkey having the same benefits the other Turkish companies have without any, you know, without losing any advantage. Okay. Now, you'd mentioned, I believe, some award that Istanbul got about like being one of the top startup environments. Do you recall that award? And could you tell us a little bit about what it means? Istanbul has a scale advantage. It's bigger than many European countries. In two hours car drive, you have millions of people. So it's a quite big business. You might be a B2B or a B2C startup, especially I always advocate this to Balkan startups from Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, all the Balkan countries. Balkans are losing a lot of population. People are moving different parts of Europe. I always advocate they may stay in their home country and develop their businesses in Istanbul. Because Istanbul is a good test market because of its size and easy access. If you have a B2C, we have millions of people at different income levels. So you can test different countries in the same city because of 
great uh, income differences. This is not something very nice, but we have it. Millions of people with very upscale lifestyle, mm. as well as a higher, you know, larger uh, medium segment, okay. or maybe a larger lower segment, depending on where you are heading. You may yeah. test your B2C product here or B2B, very vivid company business environment. You might be a B2B software company in many neighborhoods of Istanbul. There are thousands of companies at different industries because it's also the economic center of Turkey. We have many industries across the country, most of which has either offices or headquarters in Istanbul. So you might be developing a software for mining businesses or I don't know, marketing. We have them in Istanbul. So without going anywhere else, you can up to an extent, you may not grow like you grow in New York City, but you can have your products tested and market fit tested here. Yeah. And after that, you can develop your business across the world because Turkey, Istanbul is also a good airplane hub. So Turkish airlines fly everywhere. Okay. You can develop your product wherever you are, test it in Istanbul, you know, promote it globally from this area. In your like wealth of experience in the startup world, what are some of the startups that are near and dear to your heart? Like looking back, what are some of the ones that you found the most interesting or you're the most proud of being a part of? I never talk about them. Okay. Because then I forget some of them. It will be a big problem for me. Okay. I have been promoting, I have been supporting like maybe a few thousands of startups already in the last 10 years. So there's a Turkish, there's a journal, a startup journal in Turkey. They Every year, they make an annual voting between co-founders. They have different questions. And one of them asks, who is the most value-providing people? So who has the most impact to Turkish startup ecosystem? So in the last two years in a row, I am in the top 10. And wow. the last year, I was the ninth person on the 10 list. Okay. Now I am the second person. So if I talk about someone, I may forget about the others. So it might be quite a big shock. But I try to be on the co-founder side as much as I can. So if you have a problem with your investors, you have a dispute, I try to solve it Okay. like an arbitrator. I try to translate them to one another and try to solve their disputes and problems. So, okay. But I am always on the co-founder side. Everybody knows this. Okay. So I cannot tell you watch out these startups because there are hundreds or maybe eight, maybe five years before I knew the entire ecosystem. I knew every single startup in Istanbul, maybe in different parts of Turkey as well. Now I lost track. So I'm less engaged because of this new science park thing, less at the incubator. Uh And secondly, there are now uncountable number of startups flourishing in the country. So it's one person cannot follow or at least know all of them. Understandable. So there's a Turkish database, Startup Watch. Startups Watch is another startup. They do like a crunch base of Turkey. Thousands of startups are registered there. Time to time, I log in and search and try to learn what new startups are appearing. So I highly recommend the angel investors or VCs or for different reasons, Turkey has a very vivid local ecosystem of very different startups. And some of them also switch to US or different European destinations, but still keep their R&D here because of the engineering advantage. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. So as we close, I just wanted to 
thank you once again and just ask, is there anything that you'd like to mention as we, like in our present day or looking ahead regarding startups, like anything you want to tell the global entrepreneurial population? Well, I am a management professor. I teach organization theory, as I mentioned before. There are very interesting experiments going on in different parts of the world. The old enterprise company, as we know, with big hierarchies, are dissolving. I personally think in a time not far from today, in a foreseeable future, the big enterprise will vanish. So if your kids or yourself want a better life, want a better career, then you have to position yourself in this startup or innovation environment because sooner or later, every enterprise worker will need to work in his or her own company. Large enterprises are fastly in a, rapidly dissolving into smaller entities, becoming a network, becoming an Alibaba of startups. So depending on the vertical, enterprises becoming platforms rather than hiring thousands of people, they ask smaller entities to work for them. They're becoming platforms. This means if this trend will continue, and the early experiments show very significant economic results. Instead of organizing people in a large hierarchy, they become a marketplace of different startups buying and selling to create the end product, like a platform. So if the, And the early examples are quite successful. If this thing will prevail, then we won't have much jobs available to us on an enterprise level. So everybody, maybe you don't like to have a startup, but you may be forced to work in a small company where you're a shareholder in order to show some economic activity. So that's a big change. There's a Chinese company, Hire Corporation. Yeah. Have you heard about Hire? H-A-I-E-R. They make a little bit yes, of everything. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. In the white goods industry, Archelik Beko, Turkish company, Vestal is very big. Electrolux, you know, or Westinghouse, these are big enterprises. That's in the same domain in terms of number of units sold, as well as the revenue level. Hire is the world's largest company in white goods. Wow. And it's two, three years ago, they divided their entity in China into 4,000 small companies. Wow. Instead of having one big hire company, now it's a platform of 3,000, 4,000 uh, small hire entities mm. where the employee is also shareholders. And you might be in a factory producing with dishwasher. You're actually working in your own company and selling your end product to the next company. You collectively make the hire. This is a big revolution. Yeah. The hire is traded on stock exchange. If you go and look at their financial results, they're quite successful. Enterprises are now becoming a platform of more small-scale entrepreneurial companies, which means you don't need a big hierarchy mm. and you might be forced to work in a company, a small company where you're also a shareholder. So entrepreneurship is here to stay. Yeah. And it seems at some point we all will become a freelancer or working in an entrepreneurial small company. The, the business life is changing. So we should get used to this. If you're a father or mother trying to recommend your kids what to do best, the world has changed. Our world or maybe our you know, older people's world is no longer there. We have a new world here. 
and our recommendations of you know being safe, working in large companies, this and that mm. may not hold in near future. Okay, that's fascinating, and also in a way good to hear. I think. Is there anywhere that uh, you would direct people if they want to uh, get in touch with you or watch what you're doing? All the spammers can find my email quite easily. It's dennis.tunchalk at gmail.com. So I'm also available at dennistunchalk.com. I have my own blog site. Okay. So anybody would like, to, if they think I might be helpful for them, everybody should feel free to contact. Although they may wait a few days for me to reply. So it's busy world. But I would be happy to try to respond to anybody who shows some value in contacting me. Okay. Well, good luck with the Science Park. And thank you so much for talking to us today. That was a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And I hope the readers and the watchers will enjoy what we were talking about. So I'm also started reading your material and also watching your videos. This is a quite interesting uh, initiative. And I will be following you as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon.